Uh, if you have a Bible, you'd like to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 1, beginning of the New Testament. If you, if you go to that chapter, if you have it on a, a device or if you have it in paper in front of you, and then if you would turn back or kind of scroll back one page where you find the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. But in that kind of one turn, that one flick of a page, there is a time lapse. Who can tell me how long the time lapse is between the end of Malachi, start of Matthew? 400 years, often referred to as the intertestamental period. 400 years of silence because no prophets of God appeared to speak during that time. No inspired words were given or received because people were waiting, waiting for certain specific promises and prophecies to come true. Now, there was stuff going on. There were major political, cultural, and religious changes taking place during those four centuries. There was a succession of five nations that ruled Palestine during that period of 400 years. Persia, then Greece, and then Egypt, and then Syria, and then Rome. Common language spread during that time. Roads were built, laws were established, different religious groups grew up like the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and institutions like the Sanhedrin. All of these things grew up during that period. Things were happening between Malachi and Matthew, and you can read about them in various writings, including Dead Sea Scrolls and the Apocrypha. But four centuries after Malachi, chapter 4 ends, something new stirs. Literally, something new begins to stir. And the writers of Scripture got out their pens again, ready to record. The waiting was over. It was about to end. The predicted, the promised one that so many people had been waiting for was about to arrive. Lots of people had been expecting him, but very little about his first coming made any sense. Very little about his first coming made any sense to anyone who was involved, where it happened, how it happened. It just didn't add up. In fact, it created all kinds of tension and confusion and problems. But despite the various and numerous reactions that would occur and the refusals that many had to accept the identity of the one who had appeared, the opening chapter of Matthew 1 tells us very clearly. Look at verse 16. It'll be on the screen. Jesus was born, who is called Christ. That was the breaking news headline. Jesus was born, who is called Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one, the long-awaited Messiah, has come. This unique baby has arrived. Nothing is ever going to be the same again. And because this Christmas baby was born over 2,000 years ago, for two millennia now, people like us 
have marked his birth at this time of year every year. But what normally happens at this point in terms of reading the Christmas story and really getting into it is you pick up in Matthew 1 at verse 18, and you begin to read and you begin to hear about the actual birth of this long-expected one, this predicted one, this prophesied one. And so it begins now, look at verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And so whenever you read that line, you go, right, let's start reading into the Christmas story. But that is not what we're going to do. It's not what the New Testament does. The first Christmas story doesn't start in Matthew 1, verse 18, or 6. It starts in Matthew 1, verse 1, with a list. And it's a big list. And it's the kind of list you tend to skip. Unless you're doing one of those, you know, reading the Bible in a year plan, and you kind of feel you've got to read it to stick with the project, okay? And even then, you just skim it, or at least I do. But Matthew 1 starts with a genealogy. How many people have ever watched uh, one of those BBC editions of Who Do You Think You Are? Yeah, lots of people, where, where celebrities trace their family trees. Well, here in written form is the Jesus edition. Here is the Jesus edition of Who Do You Think You Are? And we're going to read it. Despite how dull that might seem, despite how hard it is to pronounce lots of the names, and you're just going to get a chance to laugh at me this morning, that's great. And despite the fact that lots of people on this list don't ring a single bell with many of us. We're going to read it anyway. Bearing in mind 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture. All Scripture's God-breathed. All of it's useful. And so, let's stand and prepare ourselves for a bit of an endurance test. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Sarah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abimadad, Abimadad the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father uh, of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jechohonai. Close. And his brothers at the time of the exile of Babylon. And after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud. Abahud, the father of Elakim. Elakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elahud. Elahud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, 
the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Grab a seat. Uh, some people are into genealogies, and some aren't. Actually, let's be honest, most aren't. But for the first century Jews, genealogies were absolutely essential. The way a person's story was told really, really mattered, and, and their family tree mattered at so many levels. And in terms of the genealogy of Jesus, the way this one begins by confirming that Jesus was the son of David, who was the son of Abraham, well, to the first century Jews, that would have meant the world. Now, chronologically, that opening statement doesn't make sense, because Abraham was before David. So why does it say son of David, son of Abraham? It's, it's out of sync. But a thousand years prior to the first Christmas, God had said that the Messiah, the anointed, the chosen one, he would come from the line of David. Second Samuel 7 tells us this. And therefore, starting this genealogy, Matthew starting this genealogy, confirming that Jesus, the Messiah, is the son of David, having that up front right at the beginning, well, that would have connected. That would have meant so much. This would have grabbed everyone's attention, established the true identity of this Christmas child. And then as you read on the tree, bills. And there are all kinds of people on this family tree, people we know about, people we don't. There are some big names. There's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We, we know about them. But there are some names that we've no clue about. Ram. Who knows anything about Ram? Nashon. What do you know about Nashon? They're all in the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Savior of the world, who is the Messiah. And many of them are at least those we know about, because there are some on that list that we have, we have no clue anything about them. But many that are on the list that we do know they've checkered pasts. They have serious defects. They have alarming moral failures. For instance, just to quote one writer, and this is just a snapshot, Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah. Isaac did the same thing. Jacob was a cheater. Judah, a fornicator. David was an adulterer. Solomon was a polygamist. Manasseh was the most evil king of Israel that ever lived. And on and on we could go. This is not a list of plaster saints. Far from it. Some weren't saints at all. The best of these men had flaws, and some were so flawed that it's impossible to see any of their good points. But they're all, and this is what I want us to get this morning, they are all in the family tree of Jesus. This is a rogues gallery. This, if you like, is a chronicle of grace. Jesus came from a lineage of sinners to save sinners. And that's one of the big messages of Christmas. And if you go away with nothing else this morning, will you please take that thought? Because this is where the Christmas story impacts our lives. This is where the Christmas story impacts our story. Because as Joseph was instructed, you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he is going to save his people from their sins. 
the Savior of the world came from a dynasty of sinners to save sinners, to save us, to save me. But one of the most shocking revelations about this collection of names, and I know a number of you are way ahead of me in this, but what is one of the most shocking things about this particular collection of names in Matthew chapter 1? Somebody tell me. It includes women. Includes women. And now we're getting into the title for the series, Eight Women and a Baby. Now, Matthew includes five in that genealogy. I'm sure you, you picked those up. We're going to look at eight. But Matthew includes five that are here. Whenever Luke comes to do the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, doesn't mention a single woman. Matthew does. That would have caused quite a stir. That would have been a huge surprise because you see, whenever the Jews made a genealogy at this time, whenever they were putting together their family trees, they never, ever included a single female. Never mind five of them. So Matthew's record's unique. And so this is a striking genealogy. It's a notable genealogy. But what's even more startling are the actual women that are included. The specific mothers listed in the family tree of Jesus are significant. They're surprising. And certainly in the case of at least two of them, maybe three, highly suspect. So let's get another bit of congregational participation. Shout out for me the five women that are named in the family tree of Jesus in Matthew 1. Go. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, not actually specifically named, but how is she referred to as? Uriah's wife, which we know is Bathsheba. And who's the fifth person named? Mary. Three of them had somewhat colorful and tarnished sexual histories. And they're among the most notorious women in biblical history, but they're in the family tree of Jesus. They're in the family tree of Jesus. And so let me repeat something I said earlier. Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, came from a lineage of sinners to save sinners. And whenever the culture and the context at that time believed, and this is what they did believe at that time, they believed that the people in your family tree were an integral part of your identity. You can sense the shock as women, these women, are named and listed and included. So here's what I want to do in this series. Might be my last. <laughs> here's what I want to do in this series. And it is going to be a different series at a number of levels, especially for this time of year for Advent for Christmas. I'm going to take a close look at these five women. I'm actually going to take a close look at eight women, but I'm going to take a close look at these five women in particular. I'm going to track their stories. I'm going to discover what we can learn from them. And I want to consider what might we be able to learn from their inclusion in the family tree of Jesus. And then expanding this further to say, I want to include three other women who played a significant part and were deeply connected to the first coming of Jesus, the Christmas child. So eight women and a baby. First one, Tamar. So what do you know about Tamar? I don't want, I don't want congregational participation at this stage. Uh, but what do you know about Tamar? 
I'm almost tempted to get you to turn around to the person beside you and just say one thing you know about Tamar, if anything. But what do you know about Tamar? Can you think of it? Oh, no, don't, don't, don't shout out, Dorothea. Don't do that to me. Don't do that to me. Because <laughs> you'll scupper him the rest of it. <laughs> but it's, yeah, let, let's, let's get into Tamar's story a wee bit. You find her, her details way back in the book of beginnings. Near the end of Genesis, Tamar's story is kind of sandwiched in between the moment where Joseph gets sold into slavery by his own brothers, which is Genesis 37, and then in Genesis 39, we have that whole bit where Joseph gets wrongly accused of assaulting Potiphar's wife. So that's Genesis 37, sold into slavery, Joseph. Genesis 39, Joseph stays calm in a really tense situation. But sandwiched in between 38 and 39 is Genesis chapter 38. And let's be really upfront and honest and say this. Most people skip Genesis 38. Most people avoid it. Very few sermons are preached on Genesis 38. Why? Because it's a tough read. It contains a lot of rather disturbing information which can be offensive to modern sensitivities. Tamar's choices are interesting, to say the least, as we're about to see. And Tamar tends to be misunderstood, misrepresented. She's written off very often by many Bible commentators even. But whatever we make of what we're about to discover, whatever we make of it, and make of it as you wish, Whatever we make of what we are about to discover, Tamar's unusual course of action, which is an understatement, helped to ensure the continuation of the line of Judah from which Jesus, the Lion of Judah, eventually would come. I'm not going to read Genesis 38, although can I encourage you to do it this afternoon? Probably not with any kids around. And I'm not going to get into the sordid details in too much depth You'll be glad to know those of you who do know it. But let me summarize. Let me, let me recap what happened. Tamar's father-in-law is a man called Judah. Judah is one of Joseph's 11 brothers. And Judah left home. Left his dad, Jacob. Left home. And he marries a Canaanite woman. And together they have three boys. Three sons. And in a culture of arranged marriages, Judah finds a wife for his oldest son who's called Ur, E-R. And this wife that Judah finds for his oldest boy is called Tamar. But the Bible tells us there's a problem. Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight. That's a direct quote. Here's another direct quote. And so the Lord put Ur to death before Ur and Tamar had any kids. Now, according to Near Eastern law and custom, whenever this happens, the next son is obligated to marry the widow in order to continue the family line. And so Judah, dad, instructs his second son, Onan, O-N-A-N, to marry and sleep with Tamar, which he does. But as a result of doing something that we're certainly not going to mention here in public, you can read about it this afternoon for yourself. But as a result of doing something that he should not have done, Onan, it says, was wicked in the Lord's sight 
and the Lord puts him to death as well. Judah has a third son. The problem is that Judah's third son, Shelah, he's too young to marry. And so Judah says to Tamar, Tamar, tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go and live as a widow in your father's house until Shelah has got a bit older, and then you can marry him. Truth is, or so it would seem, Judah had no intention of letting his youngest son marry Tamar. Given what had happened to his first two sons, there's no way he's going to let his third son marry this woman. She's just bad luck. And the text tells us that even though Shelah, the third son, had grown up, if you read further on down, it tells us that Shelah had grown up, but Tamar was not given to him in marriage. Now, this is where it all gets a bit complicated and messy and scandalous. So Judah's wife, the Canaanite woman that he left home to marry, Judah's wife dies. And after a period of grieving and mourning, he heads for a place called Timnah. And it seems that he effectively goes on a business trip because it says in the text that he goes there to visit and to kind of look on some men who were shearing his sheep, who were looking after his flock. So he goes to check out on them. Tamar hears that Judah is on his way to Timnah. And she hatches a plan. And the plan is she's going to get her father-in-law to sleep with her so that she can get pregnant. And so she ditches her widow's clothes. She's still in mourning after losing two husbands. She ditches her widow's clothes and she disguises herself as a prostitute. And Judah sees her. As he comes to Tim, the she's in Tim, Judah sees her as he approaches the town, as he approaches the place. And of course he doesn't recognize her but he decides he would like the use of her services. So he asks to sleep with her. And Tamar negotiates a fee. And the fee is one young goat from your flock. But until Judah pays her, Judah is to leave Tamar three items as a down payment. He's to leave his seal, his personal seal, its cord, and his staff. So services rendered, Tamar gets pregnant. Judah doesn't know this. He goes home. He arranges for the young goat to be delivered in payment. And also because he wants back his cord, his seal, and his staff. When the courier attempts to deliver the goat. He's told, sorry, there's never been a prostitute operating in this area. Never. And so he is sent back with the young goat. Whenever Judah is told, he decides, oh, well, tell you what, whoever it was that I slept with, they can just keep those three items and I'll just get on with my life. Three months passes. Word filters through to Judah. 
Tamar has been, and I'm choosing my words carefully, I'm not even quoting scripture here. Tamar's been playing the field, Judah. And worse still, she's got pregnant. Judah is furious. And he demands that Tamar is brought to him so that he can kill her. And to be precise, he wants to burn her. You can see why very few preachers touch this with a barge pole. So Tamar arrives, three months pregnant. And as she's being brought to see Judah, she sends a message ahead. Let me quote scripture directly. Here's the message that she sends. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Can you imagine? I am pregnant, says Tamar, by the man who owns these. Boom. Judah immediately recognizes them. And here's what he says. And again, let me quote this because this is exceptional. Here's what Judah says in response. She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. You see, it would seem that Judah affirms Tamar. Tamar eventually gives birth to Judah's baby. Actually, two babies. Because Judah and Tamar have twins, Perez and Zerah. And if you go back to Matthew 1, you see their names in the family tree of Jesus as sons of Tamar. And so Genesis 38 ends, and we go back to the story of Joseph. What are we to make of that? Have you not got so many questions? Like so many. One Bible commentator writes this. By taking unconventional risks and humbling herself in order to hold Judah accountable, she is judged more honorable and maintains the line of Judah. Wow, that's, that's quite a viewpoint. John Wesley said this about Tamar's motives. She believed the promise made to Abraham and his seed, particularly that of the Messiah, and was therefore desirous to have a child by one of that family that she might have the honor or at least stand fair for the honor of being the mother of the Messiah. Wow, that's some perspective. And I realize there are many other perspectives on Tamar, some positive, some not so positive on her deception, on her immorality, on her questionable behavior, and on Judah's questionable behavior for that matter. But you see, whatever we think of it, whatever we make of it, we cannot get away from the fact that the line of the Messiah comes through this unlikely couple. Which if nothing else, in fact, this is everything else, this demonstrates the amazing grace of God. 
the amazing grace of God. You see, after Genesis 38, we do not read another single thing about Tamar. Now, there are two other Tamars in the Bible, but this particular one that crops up again in Matthew chapter 1, we hear nothing of her in the Old Testament Scripture, right from Genesis 38 until she appears in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Her story is messy. Her story is difficult. But she is one of the eight women deeply connected to this baby that we give thanks for at this time every year. And therefore, I want to suggest a number of things about Tamar just as I close. And I'm just going to make these points, and I want you to encourage you to take take these away and reflect on these. But what I want to suggest is this, that Tamar is a woman who shows us that God accomplishes his purposes through extraordinary and surprising people. God accomplishes what he sets out to do through the most unbelievable of people. People that make no sense to us in lots of ways. People who do things that make no sense. And yet God accomplishes his purposes through people like Tamar. Secondly, Tamar is a woman who reveals that God works in mysterious ways. There are so many times God does things in the way God does things I just do not understand. And here's, here's another classic example. Here is a woman who reminds us that we write anyone off at our peril. We write anyone off at our peril. We've got to be so careful when we get into the finger-pointing game. We've got to make sure we remove the speck from our own eyes. Or sorry, the log from our own eyes before we point out the speck in our brother's eye. We've got to be so careful who we write off. Tamar's the sort of person that so many people write off, and yet God in his grace somehow involves her in his big story. Tamar is a woman who reveals God's grace in the midst of almost shocking and total disgrace. Tamar is a woman who ensured that the Lion of Judah would continue, that the Lion of Judah, as Jesus is referred to in Revelation chapter 5, that the Lion of Judah, as he will return us, that he would be born. Tamar had a part in that. A woman who also had a part in Zechariah's prophecy, from Judah will come the cornerstone. And he did come from Judah. Thanks in part to Tamar. Now, I don't know what you're going to take away from this morning. Maybe an enlarged understanding of the story of Christmas, I don't know. Maybe an increased insight into a Bible character that you've never really thought much about before. Certainly, you've never associated with Christmas. But I do pray that what you take away from this morning is a reminder that God's grace is truly amazing. Truly amazing. And we have got to make sure that we leave space for God's grace this Christmas. I want to close with a, a quote from a member of Wycliffe Bible Translators who said this, Jesus came from a family filled with unlikely people, including outcasts and harlots. Through this, Jesus tells us that he celebrates and loves the unlikely people. One, he can turn into unlikely heroes. After all, they're his family. 
And the exciting message of Christmas is this, you can be as well. You can be part of his family. Why? Because as Joseph was instructed, you're to name this baby that came from this line, you're to name this baby Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. And so he came to save sinners like Tamar. Came to save sinners like me. He came to save sinners like you. And because Jesus did come at this time of year from this family, and because he came to save sinners like because he laid down his life on the cross, you and I can also be grafted into his family tree. That is one of the big messages of Christmas. One we don't often hear, one we don't often get. And so this morning, all I want to say is thank you, God, for Christmas. God, thank you for your grace that never ceases to amaze me. And may I, this year, leave plenty of space for your grace. So that's one woman and a baby. Next Sunday, we'll look at two more. Two more women, still the same baby.